Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Michelle Zahner is the lead singer and creative force behind the indie dream pop band Japanese Breakfast. This year, Zahner released a series of career-defining projects that propelled her band to widespread critical acclaim. Earlier this year, Zana released her New York Times best-selling memoir, the wildly popular Crying in H Mart. The book, which began as a New Yorker essay, has since been optioned by MGM O'Brien for a film adaptation. The book details Zana's time caring for her cancer-stricken mother in the period after her mom's death, when Michelle recorded Japanese Breakfast's sublime debut, Psychopomp. Shortly after Michelle's book came out, Japanese Breakfast released their third and most ambitious album, Jubilee. It has been named one of the best albums of the year by The Wall Street Journal, NPR, and Billboard. On today's episode, Broken Record producer Leah Rose talks to Michelle Zahner about her triumphant year and exactly how big she wants her band to become. Zahner also talks about casting the soprano star Michael Imperioli in her video for Savage Good Boy and why she ended up going a little too far in the video's neck-biting scene. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Leah Rose with Michelle Zahner. You've had a really big year this year. You released Crying in H Mart in April. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for several weeks and then your third album, Jubilee, in June. 
and the album's doing really well. Yeah. Are you thinking about your next writing project or is it more of a next album? Yeah, I feel pretty fried, to be honest. It was a really overwhelming year and I'm like so relieved and happy with the response. It's just definitely above and beyond all expectation in the best way. But um, for the last seven years really had a couple projects in the works really grounding me. And I do have the screenplay for Crying in H Mart, but that kind of feels like I'm revisiting something that I've worked on before. So yeah, I don't know. I was I was just telling my husband I feel just really lazy because <laughs> like for the first time I'm just like I don't have this drive to juggle three projects the way that I did for the past few years and I have a little bit of guilt that I'm just like I don't I just like don't I want to just eat at restaurants and like chill for a while. <laughs> Yeah, I heard you say that you're in a stage right now where you're just sort of an empty vessel and you're just looking around and you're thinking. So when you first started out and you were in some of your early bands and you would play music for your mom or you would talk to your mom about it, it seemed like she hoped it was just a passing phase and you would kind of come to your senses and get a nice stable job. That did happen for a period of time after your mom passed away. You know, once things started to pick up with Psychopomp, did you ever consider just giving it all up for that reason? Yeah, I think that was part of what moving to New York and getting a job was, was just like, part of it was like, I'm 25. And if it hasn't happened for me yet after almost 10 years of doing the grind, that's probably not going to happen, you know, and it's time to give it up. I'd never actually like worked a nine to five job without something else on the back burner creatively and trying to do that very quickly revealed that I I just feel so completely unfilled by that lifestyle you know I would work from in New York like a nine-to-five job really is like eight to seven and I would eat my little sweet green at my computer like uh, everyone else and and I would leave just feeling like I, I did nothing I like just felt so completely unfulfilled every day And even still, when I did that, I realized, like, okay, I need some kind of project. And I would go to Crown Heights, like, after work at 7, drive in rush hour traffic, mix with Ned Eisenberg from, like, 8 to midnight and then go to bed because I just felt like I couldn't couldn't sleep without doing something that day. And and then I just got very, very lucky and, and really won the lottery with that album. Can you talk a little bit about how you started to record Psychopomp? And how you eventually were able to get that out in the world? So my mom passed away in October 2014. And then I would say probably in December of that year, I stayed behind in Eugene for another six months to kind of just make sure that my dad was okay mentally and uh, help him sort of pack up this house that they lived in for, you know, 15 years. And, you know, it's just a really dark period of my life where I was just stuck in this house in this in the woods with my dad. <laughs> like all the furniture and the decorations were my mom's. I had to fold her clothes and put them away and sell things. It was just a really horrible, darkest period of my life. And, you know, I needed like a little project to just like figure out what was going on. And there was this little shed at the bottom of the property. My parents had like, you know, three to five acres like uh, in the forest when I was done for the day, I would like go down there and like write some songs. My husband was living with us and he played bass on the album. And then my my, my first boyfriend and, and good friend, Nick Holly Gamer, who I talk about in the book, he was living in Eugene and he came and played guitar and introduced me to this guy, Colin Redman, who, who played drums and had a little bedroom studio. 
And so that became a way for me to kind of just like let off some steam and, you know, kind of like figure out the things that I was feeling after this whirlwind six months of living in Eugene, taking care of my mom who had stage four cancer. And, you know, so I, I wrote Psychopomp and those guys helped me uh, arrange it and played the other instruments. And then my husband and I moved to New York, I think in May or June of 2015. And the album needed mixing, and I had this college friend, Ned Eisenberg, who I thought was a very talented mixing engineer. And, and we actually started opening up those songs while I was working that nine-to-five job in advertising. Yeah. What I thought was going to be mixing ended up being like adding a lot of synths and speeding up songs and adding samples. And, and Ned really kind of revitalized an album that was maybe a little bit more straightforward. Did you love it? Were you proud of it? Like, What was your thought about it as you were mixing it and adding more to it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Ned is a brilliant pr- producer and, and, and the stuff that we were doing there. And even, you know, when we were, I was recording in Eugene, I thought it was great. But I thought everything that I did was great. You know what I mean? Like my old band, I thought all of our albums were great and, and no one else really cared about them. So, yeah, I thought that we made a great thing. When we were done, I like sent it out to all of these tiny labels and no one wanted it. Everyone, you know, passed on it. And then eventually I found this small label called Yellow K Records and you know, they they were interested in putting it out. And in my mind, I was like, okay, we'll press 500 copies and over the next, like, 10 years, we'll, like, slowly <laughs> sell them. And I told him straight up, like, I'm not going to tour. I have this job. I have health insurance. I, like, I've done that. It's not, it doesn't work. Like, I, I'm, I'm over that lifestyle. I have to, like, focus on this. And he's like, okay, that's fine. And he was still willing to put it out. And they got a PR person, Aloy, who's still my PR person. And you know, when he told me he was hiring a publicist, I was like, why? You know, what a waste of money. Like, it's not going to do anything. And the record got great press, and I got offered the Mitski tour. I had labels that were interested. And around that time, I had, like, a year-end assessment of my progress at my job, and I thought I was getting a raise, and they actually told me I was, like, not doing well. (laughs) And so, like, the owner, I think... He's kind of like a punk guy, actually, and, like, I think he thought I was, like, funny, and I think he felt bad for me that I was so blindsided by this, you know, this end-of-the-year progress report that he misspoke, I think, and he offered me a two-month severance, which was crazy because I'd I'd only been there for nine months. Like he was letting you go? Yeah, he was like, if you're not happy, like, if you're so surprised by this, like, maybe it's not, you know, you shouldn't, you should go do something else or whatever, And so I took my paid Christmas vacation, and around that time I had been offered all these South By showcases. I thought about it, I came back, and I was like, I'll take that two months severance. And in my mind, I was like, okay, well, you have two months of pay to, like, see if this is going to turn into something and reassess. And then it, it ended up doing really well. We went to South by, we got signed, I got a booking agent, I got this, you know, North American tour, and and I never worked another job since then. So what do you think it was about the album that stuck this time? I don't know, you know, I think it's a, there was a number of things. I think one, you know, maybe I had just finally paid enough of my dues. Like maybe my name had kind of been like bubbling up and, and there was a kind of clarity and focus that my other band before it didn't have because I could kind of like be this directorial force that I, I had kind of, you know, the band before was kind of more of a democracy. It was like four people like, you know, and I was I was kind of like writing music then that was a little bit harder. It was a little harder than what I wanted to make maybe or that what I more, more naturally like comes out of me, I guess. Like I was in a band with three kind of dudes that came up 
in punk and hardcore. And I think that Japanese breakfast, I was able to kind of lean into like more pop sensibility, more indie. So it was just more listenable, more palatable. And yeah, I think also a narrative like came out. Like when, when we wrote a press release, like I didn't say anything about my mom passing away. But, you know, I'm, as you can probably tell, like I'm a pretty open book, easy person to interview. And like, I think that, you know, when people ask, like, what is this song about? I told them, you know, honestly. And, and, and that narrative kind of came out on its own. And I think that it resonated with people and, and that was part of it. And I just got lucky with the right place. Right? Who knows why? Uh, but th- that's my theory. That's well, also very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't chalk it all up to luck. The cover image is so arresting. It's just, it sort of stays with you. It's a little bit mysterious, like what's going on here. How did you pick that image and, and where did you find it? I know it's your mom's in the picture, but how did you come across the image? I mean, first of all, I, you know, was packing up the house and threw so much stuff away except for all the family photos. So I was like going through all these family photos all the time. And so they were certainly like top of mind and it was also free. (laughs) So so I didn't have to hire anyone. It was just like, I like this image. You know, I think my mom looks so beautiful there and like she's with her friend and she's around my age, you know, when I lost her. And it really just looks like, she is like in the sky. Like it looks like they're on a cloud and she's reaching for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've done so many interviews and I haven't really talked about this, but like when I think about that album cover, like it does look kind of like it's a woman reaching down below from like a cloud or something. But it also looks like it's a woman like letting go of someone beneath, you know? And that's like just so much what that album is about. You know, I was like having all these dreams about my mom and it felt like it was her way of, like, reaching towards me or something. But it was also, like, you know, about becoming an adult after, like, you, like, lose your parents maybe a little bit sooner than you're ready to. And, yeah, like, having to, to forge on uh, after that and being let go of. So, yeah, it felt, like, so fitting for, for that time and, and the themes on that record. That's In Heaven from Japanese Breakfast debut album, Psychopomp. We'll be right back with more from Michelle Zahner after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% 
on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with Leah Rose and Michelle Zahner of Japanese Breakfast. For the second album, did you have kind of a creative frame for it? Did you have an idea of where you wanted to go? So we played South by, it must have been 2016, and everything exploded for me as an artist there. And I had this song, Machinist, that was that song about falling in love with a robot, and in my mind, you know, after like doing all this press around Psychopomp, I was like, I don't want to talk about this ever again. I want to, I don't want to write an album about grief. I need to like write an album about like a sci-fi concept album that has nothing to do with my personal life and everything to do with like uh, fiction. And I had kind of promised Dead Oceans, like, I told, the, you know, they're like, oh, you must have another album ready to go or something. And I had kind of lied and been like, oh, yeah, like, it's ready to go. Sign me. You know, but it was kind of a, a good way to go about it because, I, you know, I had all of the pressure of, like, a, a successful kind of debut that I was like, okay, like, I need to avoid the sophomore slump. Maybe the best way to do that is just do it fast. Like, let just write, you know, what feels good to you immediately. But then when I started trying to go in on this, like, very heavy-handed 
sci-fi concept record, I was like, you know, your mom still just died. Like, that was, like, two years ago, and you're still going through a lot of these feelings. And I think it ended up being an album much more about this different type of grief. I was, like, kind of dissociating a lot. I felt very out of touch from reality and, you know, kind of spacey, I guess. So I think that it's kind of, like, a very loose concept record about grief and mourning and kind of, like, removing yourself from feeling in this way. And... I had kind of like a bad falling out with Ned Eisenberg, the producer who worked on Psychopomp. And I reached out to my friend Craig Hendricks, who ended up joining the live band. And and he recorded my my old band, Little Big League's first album. And the two of us like forged a really wonderful collaborative relationship from, from starting with that record. But it was really a very insular process. It was very concentrated one month of like largely just writing, arranging, recording in his little warehouse studio. Like, just me and him playing all the instruments and putting it together. And I felt like that's what I needed to kind of avoid the kind of pressures of the sophomore slump taking its toll on me. Yeah. I feel like your fashion really exploded between album two and three. And is that just because of, like, now you have access to more resources? Is it knowing more designers? How did that happen? And it's it's been so incredible to see. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it started with just like needing something to wear, <laughs> and a big change was I I'm I started hanging out with Cece Liu, who's my stylist, and she's you know become a really good friend of mine, and the, and the two of us like went from you know begging small designers to loan to us, buying and returning a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, And she just, you know, I think she just really introduced me to fashion in general as an art form. And I started actually really enjoying it and feeling really good wearing different things and it becoming a part of the show and having different themes for different eras. And, you know, when I think about musicians like Bjork or David Bowie or, you know, John or whatever, like, it's nice for me that you can think of their album cycles, like what sort of era they're in. You know, getting to be a, a bigger artist, you just start to tear apart all of the details of like, what can you add to make it better? You know, all these little things. It's not just like adding more musicians. It's not just like adding more instruments and like more like detailed analog sound. It's also like, what does the backdrop look like? What does the production look like? What does the lighting look like? What will people are looking at what we're wearing? What does that look like? Or like the drum head or, you know, the microphone decoration, whatever, like any detail, like it just is this level of this, this heightened level of thoughtfulness. I like the idea of like integrating that in every single thing that we do. And so the wardrobe started to kind of take on that sort of meaning for me too. And the more that I learned about different designers and the more that Cece kind of integrated me into that world, the more exciting and and fun it was to kind of come up with more ideas and uh, make that a part of the show. Yeah, it's so cool. Oh, thank you. So I just wanted to ask you specifically about a couple of the songs on Jubilee. Oh, great. Okay, so Tactics. Yeah, yeah. This seems to be new on Jubilee. There's string sections and you talked about you know, as your evolution as an artist went on, you started adding different elements um, into the scores. And this is just seems like a huge jump from Psychopomp. So where did the idea come from? Yeah, I started writing a lot more songs on piano for this album. And so Tactics was a song that started on the piano and I really wanted it to be this kind of Randy Newman type ballad. And Craig transposed the introduction that was originally played on the piano to a string quartet. And 
then he kept saying like he had this like Bill Withers beat in mind. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is a ballad. This is a Randy Newman ballad. And once I heard it, I was like, oh, that Bill Withers speech. Like, yeah, okay, that, that makes complete sense. And and that was sort of how that song came together. Cool. I feel like that song hasn't gotten its due. Uh, that's one of my favorite songs on the record, and I'm surprised that more people don't gravitate towards it. Um, and then Savage. Oh, yeah. If you could talk a little bit about the video, too, for that as well. Yeah, so Savage, Good Boy... I wrote after reading a news headline about billionaires buying bunkers, and I thought, you know, that's a horrifying reality. In my mind, like, that song is about a billionaire kind of coaxing a young woman to live with him in his bunker as the kind of, as the world burns around them and and global warming takes over. And I think over time, it's kind of, like, revealed that this guy who just thinks that I'm just playing this game, you know? I'm doing what it takes to win. I'm doing what it takes to survive and protect my family. Over time, it's just like that reality of just that mentality of hoarding wealth on such a high level reveals itself as a more and more menacing perspective. And so I wanted a very literal translation of that video. And I thought, you know, my dream savage good boy was Michael Imperioli. Uh, because, and, and we thought, that, you know, my cinematographer and I love the Sopranos, and we followed him on Instagram and just saw that, you know, he was kind of in the scene. Like, he's a big shoegaze fan, and he's really into Moses Sumney and My Bloody Valentine. And I just thought that he might be down for a kind of, you know, for him, probably very low-budget music video appearance. And... You know, he looks so great now, and it's kind of like a different role for him. Like, you know, he's always been this kind of, like, working-class sort of tough guy, but he looks so handsome and, like, I think that, you know, dressed up in that way, like, he he looks like he could be this other type of guy, and so I thought it would be fun to, to cast him. I'm really, really lucky that he was in it because he's so great in it. What was it like to work with him? I mean, being a big fan of The Sopranos and then you're just like so physically close with him in while filming that video and you're like biting his neck. Like, was that? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it was great. I mean, he's a very generous person and a, and a fantastic actor. And I, I'm really grateful that he had no ego and he just, you know, he really let me direct, you know, and he really took me very seriously and, you know, reassured me in many times to give him feedback and that he was going to take it seriously. And, and you know, watch, I was the first time I worked with a real actor, really, and uh, a professional actor. And yeah, just seeing like the small variations that he made from take to take, like, uh, and what he could give, like, was so fun, you know, to, to like watch a true actor work in that way. Um, was it hard to give him feedback? I mean, it's, was it hard to articulate what you wanted? I had a real vision for it. The hardest thing was uh, getting the blood to work, to make the bite look believable. Was it in actually, your mouth? It was in my mouth, and it was initially like I was trying to squeeze a bottle from off camera, and the bottle got stuck, like the blood wouldn't come out. And actually, like, during the first take, my brain kind of crossed wires and like I kept trying to squeeze this bottle. It wasn't coming out. And I was like, oh, it was on film. So I was like, oh, you're burning film. Like, come on, come out. And as I was clenching my hand down, my, my mouth also started clenching down. And I didn't realize until after the take that I had like accidentally bit the shit out of Michael Imperioli's neck and he had this huge bite mark and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like now you think I'm this like weird kinky like freak trying to like get one in. 
And I like, I was like, I was trying to explain to him and he was very understanding, but I was like, I was just mortified that that happened. Because it was the last take of the day and of course, and like, you know, I was just like stressing about time and I felt, I just felt so bad. (laughs) Wow, he's a trooper. Yeah. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Michelle's Honor. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Willie Nelson. Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with the rest of Leah Rose's interview with Michelle Zahner. How's it been performing shows? Did you feel like you were rusty at first when you were first performing? Yeah, definitely. And I think it was tough for me because I'm not the type of singer that like sings in my free time, you know? So getting my voice like back and 
you know, even just like the swagger of being a front person it, after not talking to people and then suddenly seeing thousands of people watching you is really tough. And so I said, I think that the first tour was really, really hard for me to adjust. We were also, yeah, a bigger group for the first time, bigger profile, bigger crowds, bigger venues on a bus. Uh, it was a real adjustment. And I felt a lot of performance anxiety that I never experienced before, just questioning if I deserved to be there. And, you know, it was just a huge change. And also, like, my stamina, I think, has really suffered. And I've, I feel like I've heard about this from a lot of people with any job of just, it's harder to do more than one thing a day. And it used to be I would work on my book or work on a soundtrack while on tour. I would multitask or be able to do press and stuff. And this time I just really, I felt like I was on that show Naked and Afraid, like towards the end of the days where people are like, it's just not worth like exuding the, the calories to move. And so you're just kind of like sitting still for a really long time to just survive. I felt like that where I just, all I could do was play the shows and I could really just focus on on surviving tour this past couple of runs. Yeah. So when you were just starting out and you were starting to do live shows, how did you think about what you were going to be like on stage? Who did you model yourself after, if anybody? I wanted to have like a kind of like orchestral classic element. Like I always think of my dream show as being as curated as like the Bjork Vespertine shows with the choir from Greenland and the harp player and Matmus. Like I would love to be able to get to the point where it can just be more and more creative and curated and inventive like that. But then there's also bands like Wilco or Death Cab, who are these like rock bands who have had these really long careers with really diverse, ever-changing albums. And and I and just seem like there are bands that have really good head on their shoulders and are also kind of just always pushing themselves to do better. And so I, I feel like those are my my two main models that I try to to go for as we get bigger. And then I've heard you talk also about Karen O, how you really admired her growing up. And your interview with her in interview was so great and, and so nice to hear you two connecting. Tell me a little bit about meeting her. Were you super nervous for that? Did it live up to what you were hoping that it would be? Yeah, I feel like that was my, like, meeting the president, like, for other people, you know? Like, I felt like that was the person I was the most nervous about meeting and I feel I, I almost like didn't want to meet her because I didn't want to ruin my image of her or whatever my fantasy of her uh we didn't meet in person because it was during the lockdown and I didn't we zoomed but it was just our voices which I, I was kind of nice honestly because I feel like I could just really concentrate on the conversation and made it a little bit less nerve-wracking but I also really appreciate that she's a very She's just a creative genius and my hero and so brilliant and intelligent, but she also is very nervous and relatable and earnest and uses a lot of filler and talks kind of like fast and jolty in the way that I do. So I think I felt kind of naturally pretty comfortable with her. It felt like we were kind of cut from a similar cloth and uh, she read my book and enjoyed it and, you know, was very encouraging of me in, in the perfect way. And I, I wish I I wish I had a full recording. I did ask Interview to send me the recording, but I think they thought I was joking. I was like, I want to listen to this recording like every night when I fall asleep because, 
you know, I'm pretty sure at one point she called me like a singular artist and, you know, hearing your hero call you that or, or just appreciate your work is just a real career highlight dream come true. It was it was everything that I wanted that conversation to be. I was really, really lucky. That's incredible. Yeah. Thinking about you watching Karen O when you were younger, watching her videos, it reminded me of in your book when you talk about when you finally started to tour after Psychopomp came out, you would see the like the 16-year-old girls in the audience who were looking up at you in wonderment and how much that meant to you. Can you just talk about sort of like that full circle moment? Yeah, I mean, I would say that our demographic more than other indie bands has a lot more young Asian people, particularly young Asian girls. And yeah, I mean, I think that people enjoy like seeing themselves, you know, and it's kind of like a rare thing when when you're a minority in America. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a real honor. I've had a few young girls come up to me and say, you know, you're my Karen O and, and I, I can feel what you feel. And yeah, that's really strange coming from a place where, you know, I talk about this in the book, but there was still this real scarcity mentality that I had to kind of tackle of just seeing this woman who inspired me to see myself represented in this very white male dominated industry. And then also this feeling of insecurity that, you know, oh, there's already one Asian American woman doing this. There's not really going to be room for another. It's exciting to see that change and the younger generation have a lot more role models to look up to that, that look different. In your interview with Mark Ronson, you were talking about how you've never recorded in an actual big recording studio and worked with an outside producer. Is that something you're considering for the next project? Or do you think you'll sort of stay in line with what you've done with the past three? Yeah, I think that that's actually a really exciting uh, new terrain for me. You know, we did do our Spotify sessions in at Electric Lady and, you know, which is a very legit studio. And uh, I did record some strings and piano in, at this very nice studio called Spice House Sound in, in Philly. And I think that those experiences were what led me to, you know, gave me the experience of what it was like to record, like what makes a studio like that special. I had this moment where I was recording Better the Mask for the Sable soundtrack and I had recorded, you know, 10 to 12 vocal performances just on like an SM7 and um, my Apollo Twin and, and I had comped them together feeling like, you know, oh, it's the performance that really matters. And then I recorded a scratch vocal at Spice House Sound on like their very nice vintage Norman and and these all these preamps and you know that scratch vocal sounded way better than anything that I had come together and I think that that was kind of a really eye opening experience or like hearing what a, an acoustic guitar can sound like when it's engineered properly and Electric Lady and and you know it's kind of like always like the simplest stuff like that that really. You can hear the difference now. And and I think that that's what's really exciting. I'm really glad that I did the records that I did this way because I learned so much. And I think maybe it just like I have more reverence for studios now that I would I can afford to go in and, and record and, and bring this sort of elevated version of an, a new record to. It sounds like your voice is getting over the course of the three projects, like your voice is getting clearer and clearer and more upfront. Is that a conscious decision? Sort of, you know, I mean, it's it's nice to hear you say that. I think that there were a couple of things, like I think certainly the fidelity of our recordings improved over time. The budget certainly improved over time. My knowledge and, and ears, I think, have improved over time. But I also think I, I've always been really 
shy uh, uh, about my voice. Uh, and I think touring for the last five years has made me a much more confident singer and, and performer. And I've gotten a lot, I've become a much stronger vocalist. I feel like that's something I can personally really hear from album to album is just becoming, you know, I think I've challenged myself more in just the songs that I write. Yeah, I think I've just become a much better singer just because I I do it every day, you know? And, and when I was younger, you know, I wasn't touring regularly and I, I had a, a lot less confidence in my in my voice. I've heard you talk about possibly wanting to make a more pop album at some point in the future. Absolutely. I think I it was something I actually started to do on Jubilee more and, you know, have like dabbled in over time. Like, you know, there's a song like, called Kokomo, Indiana on Jubilee. You know, I'm a 32-year-old woman that's married and it's a very stable, generous relationship, but, you know, no one wants to hear about that, really. And, like, you know, Kokomo, I I wrote from the perspective of a young boy living in Kokomo, Indiana, who's saying goodbye to his high school sweetheart who's moving to Australia for a study abroad program. That was the narrative in my mind. And I've certainly never been a young boy in Kokomo, Indiana, but I know what it's like to feel stuck in a small town. And I know, I remember what it was like in high school when a relationship ended before you were ready. And so I wanted to write a sweet love song about just a, a boy that was like, you know, I I know this isn't forever and, and you're about to go impress the whole world with the person that I fell in love with. And what if he could just be okay with that? What if you had the maturity at that age to just like have it and then let it go? So... I feel like I've already started to write that way and it's been really fulfilling and it can be just as moving or Better the Mask is a song I really love that I wrote for Sable. And, you know, that has nothing to do with me. And I feel like that's the most compelling song I've ever written as an artist, uh, truly. And I didn't put any any personal detail there. And that, that is really exciting to me. And I think that I'm really looking forward to harnessing that more and more uh, over time as a recording artist. What has been your biggest pinch me moment up until this point? There's so many things that happened this year that are totally unreal. I mean, the first one was the New York Times bestseller list. That was, that's something that, like, I'll always be that now. You know, I get buried with that, which is incredible. That was, that was the first huge thing of the year. Yeah. Playing five nights at, at Union Transfer in Philadelphia. We sold out five nights at the venue where I used to work the coat check. And my old boss, Sean Agnew, uh, had had the coat check, a big coat check painted sign that that's called Michelle's Honors coat check now, which is incredible. And yeah, uh, Jeff Tweedy covering uh, Kokomo, Indiana was really a major pinch me moment. I, I've, you know, Wilco is the perfect band. They are what I aspire my band to walk in the footsteps of. They're just a classically great and everyone loves them. And, yeah. And uh when I wrote Kokomo, Indiana, and we were coming up with a string arrangement for it, I mean, we we had a moment where we were like, is this too close to Jesus, et cetera? Like, this is, I mean, this is so inspired by just, like, the elegance of that arrangement. And when I wrote Posing for Cars, I was like, I want this solo to feel like this solo in, at least that's what you said. And so to see, like, my one of my songwriting heroes, like, cover my song was really wild and really, really pinch me special. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, three days from now, I'm, I'm going to be covering Jesus, etc. with him at ACL. So that's like my big pinch, pinch. That's why I'm in Austin early. So I'm really excited. Wow. But yeah, I've been practicing. I know Jesus, etc. I've like listened to that song since I was a teenager. And like, I actually walked down the aisle at my wedding to, she's a jo- like to a Wilco song. But I, I've known 
one, I mean, Jesus Center is like the biggest Wilco song, and like I love that song. But even still, I'm like so nervous to like, like what if I forget? I thought you don't get nervous before gigs. I weirdly do now, and I get really nervous about doing anything on other people's stuff. Because if it's my own thing, like I don't really care about messing it up because it's like just me. But if if I'm doing something like for someone else's band, I get really nervous about it, or even just like. I was thinking, like, I, I get really nervous about even just, like, sustaining a syllable for the right amount of time. Like, I don't want to, like, change it, the melody at all, you know? Yeah. Or I don't want to say, like, so instead of this or, you know what I mean? Like, even, like, small changes that are so, like, negligible. Like, I get, like, really anxious about, like, tampering with someone else's work in this way that I, I don't. I don't care if I, like, fumble But isn't that part of it? Song, like, isn't you know? that okay to sort of slightly change it, internalize it? and? I'm sure it is. I mean, like, when... He covered Kokomo, like, he definitely, like, changed the melody, and uh, I thought yeah. it was, like, f- you know, it's, like, endearing because it's him, you know, and it's fun. But, like, as a young one being invited to do this huge thing, like, uh, I want to do it perfectly, and sometimes, like, I'll, that'll, like, really psych me out in this way that I, I don't get as nervous about uh, for my own shows. So are you guys going to be singing it together? Are you, like, trading off verses, or how is it going to— I actually don't know. I have rehearsal in two day- on Wednesday, and, and I guess we'll figure— it out there. I was like texting Jeff Tweedy and I was like, I'll like sing the chorus with you or like I'll sing, you know, maybe we trade verses. And he seemed to like really want me to like kind of take it over. He's like, oh, people are tired of hearing me sing my songs. And I was like, no, they're, <laughs> they're not. Okay. Wow. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. I don't know. Uh, That's I'm so very cool. excited. Yeah. So ultimately, when you think about your career and where you are now and what's happened just really over this past year, how big do you want to be? I think that, like, my mentality is, like, I'm going to push as far as I can go just out of, like, curiosity of, like, how far we can go. Like, how would I even be in control of that? I have to just do my best, and I'm curious about, like, making it as big as I— You know, I could do this DIY thing that, like, Mountaineer does, like, where it's just it's just him— and he he does all his own press and booking and you know management and all that stuff. But there you know there's also like a curiosity that I I feel like of just well how far can it go you know like I never thought I would be in a bus like I never thought I would be playing Five Nights at Union Transfer I never thought any of this stuff. And we're far beyond my wildest ambitions. Even as like a 16-year-old girl that knew nothing about the music industry, I never, ever thought that I would make it this far. So I kind of just, um, I'm always going to write music that's interesting to me. I'm always going to like follow like principles that that are meaningful to me. But I also am very curious of just like, well, I'm not going to like shy away from it getting bigger Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk. It was so much fun connecting. I've been like completely immersed in your world for the past month. So it's really nice to talk to you about it. I really appreciate it. This was so thoughtful and I I really enjoyed my, my time here. Thanks to Michelle Zahner for the insightful view into her creative evolution. You can hear her new album, Jubilee, along with our favorite Japanese breakfast songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus.
Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to Musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.